We tend to reach out to people most like us when we want to start getting our message out. But the secret lies in getting engagement across networks. In this episode, a bit of inspiration for reaching out further so you can influence more successfully. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 422. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. Each one of us, every single day, cannot do it alone, of course. Uh, We are always uh, seeking out ways as leaders to do a better job of collaborating with others. And when I think of someone who is changing the world on a regular basis, daily perhaps, my friend Sandy Morgan is the first person that comes to mind. She is such a gifted expert in so many ways, and in one way that we'll learn about today of how to really influence across organizations, across networks, and even across industry and discipline. I am thrilled to welcome back to the show my friend Sandy Morgan. Sandy is the director of the Global Center for Women and Justice at Vanguard University of Southern California. She is recognized globally for her expertise on combating human trafficking and working to end violence against women. She began her anti-trafficking work in Athens, Greece, where she served on the board of the Athens International Nurses Association. She's also served as the administrator of the Orange County Human Trafficking Task Force before her appointment as the Global Center for Women and Justice Director. Today, she is a professor, researcher, and partner to many organizations and agencies across the globe, including governments, law enforcement, and nonprofits. One example of that is a current partnership with the Ministry of Higher Education in Iraq, that collaborates on building a network of women in higher education. Since 2011, she has hosted along with me the bi-monthly Ending Human Trafficking podcast, which has been recognized by the National Clearinghouse on Families and Youth at the Department of Health and Human Services as a great way to get up to speed on human trafficking. I am honored to get to serve on the board of Sandy Center and to get to be a small part of her work over the last decade. Sandy, I am so glad to have you back on the show. Thank you so much, Dave. I love listening to Coaching for Leaders and often share it as a resource to my friends that are trying to figure out how to lead well. Well, I am so grateful to have you as a friend, first of all, and as a professional partner in so many capacities. And you and I, I don't know if I guess we've said this maybe on the Ending Human Trafficking show, but we talk a lot on how to collaborate and share ideas. And you, I know, are borrowing things from Coaching for Leaders, and I am often borrowing your wisdom and expertise and thinking about partnerships and collaboration. And that's, I think, the focus of our conversation today is how can we, any of us as leaders, do a better job at this? And one thing that you run into a lot in your work is you have become known across the world, really, for your expertise in helping the world address this huge issue with human trafficking. And a lot of people reach out to you for advice and for mentorship. And and actually, before that, maybe we should say a bit, for those who don't know about the issue of human trafficking, could you frame it a little bit for us of what is the issue and why do you and so many people have your attention on it? 
Well, I think human trafficking is not something new. It is old. If you go back to ancient literature, you can find examples in biblical stories. Think of Joseph, whose brothers sold him. But in modern contemporary culture, we have now identified slavery as against basic human rights and human dignity. And so many traditional forms of labor exploitation are no longer tolerated, not just in the West, but internationally. So in 2000, the Palermo Protocol identified when anyone was recruited or obtained for the purpose of slave labor or commercial sexual exploitation, they would be held accountable and prosecutable, and that the victims would be eligible to receive support. So educating our community has been almost 20 years from an international perspective. The U.S. passed our Trafficking Victims Protection Act in 2000, and the Trafficking in Persons report now that came out in June is the 19th report that they have produced. And it's chronicled the global rise to understanding by governments as well as not NGOs and other organizations, communities of education and faith-based communities to understand not just how to identify and prosecute the bad guys, but really a redirection to how do we prevent this and build communities that are safe for everyone. There has been so much more attention given to this issue in recent years, as you just mentioned, which is wonderful because the focus of the world has become more on this issue as a problem that needs to be addressed. My sense is this has created also an interesting scenario for you personally and leading the center in that because so much more attention is being painted to this issue, a lot of people reach out to you on a regular basis and say, hey, I'd like to help. And oh, by the way, I'm going to be starting an organization to address this and they reach out to you for mentoring or advice. That happens a lot, doesn't it? Oh, it does. And it's actually one part of my job that I don't like because I have to tell people, I don't think you should start something. I think you should become partners with someone who's already doing something. My sense is that there are so many nonprofits now, all fighting human trafficking, that the overhead alone could probably fund an anti-human trafficking program in one single country. This is not the best way to do something. And I actually remember having this conversation walking along the streets in Athens with a close friend and mentor saying, should I start a nonprofit or work for the government or work in education? And I, as I was at that time working as the coordinator for the Global Center for Women and Justice at Vanguard University. And it became very clear in that conversation that the academic house was the best place for me. And that's when I started really studying the issues so that I could be a voice and make a difference and calling other people to that 
when you introduced me, Dave, I always feel a little insecure when people call me an expert. Yeah, I hear you. Me too. <laughs> uh, um, and actually, I don't think that anyone that I know is a global expert on human trafficking. I think what I'm really good at is getting experts around me in my community. That's the real key to ending human trafficking is building a coalition, a collaborative model where we're all working together, which is why I say to people, don't go start another thing. It's going to take you, it's like an if you plant an olive tree, it takes seven years to get your first harvest. What could you do if you started working with something that was already mature and brought your expertise to that? And isn't it the case that so much of what we term expertise is in a lot of cases what you've just described? It's relationships. It's having relationships and partnerships along with the knowledge. And you've actually zeroed in on the exact reason I wanted you to share some of your wisdom with us today, because you more so than any other person I know, you are so good at bringing people together, people and organizations that in some cases have extremely different agendas, very different belief systems. And yet you are able to find a way to find a common path forward for people to collaborate together. And I'm really, really curious how you do that. And I, and I know you've used some principles over the years and a framework that's helped you to think about that. And I'm, I'm, I wonder if you can give us a bit of an insight of just how, you, how your thinking's evolved on this. Well, I was very influenced by an author I read back in 2010, James Davison Hunter, and he's a sociologist at the University of Virginia and founder and executive director of their Institute for Advanced Studies in Culture. I was fascinated with his book, To Change the World, especially as it related to ending human trafficking, because he used William Wilberforce as an exemplar for cultural change. And if you remember, Wilberforce was credited with ending the transatlantic slave trade. Mm. And he didn't do that by starting up his own nonprofit. He actually became a member of parliament. He had his own group that he met regularly with that was his kind of think tank. And his approach to ending slavery in that context was very multidimensional, lots of overlapping networks. And people who spend much time with me, they start counting how many times I say overlapping networks. Yeah, and that's a term that came up in our conversation about this episode, is this framework of overlapping networks. What is an overlapping network for you? So, you know, we do Ensure Justice every year at Vanguard University. At uh, the annual conference for yes. the Global Center. And when we do that, people have wanted me to just address one issue for one population. And I began to express to people that if we look at our human trafficking victim, our, our survivor, like a patient, and you remember, I'm a nurse, and I used to be an operating room nurse. 
you did not need just a doctor in the room. You had to have a doctor, a whole team of other support professionals to take care of one person. So you have to ask who else needs to be in the room? Who else is going to be critical to the life-saving process going on here? And that is what I started to ask. So if I'm working on children who are vulnerable to being exploited online, who all do I need to have in the room? Well, I need to have the teachers that see them more than anybody else during the week. I need to have their parents. I need to have community leaders that can control access to internet spaces at schools and libraries and community centers. I need to have the law enforcement people who actually are going to prosecute the cyber exploiters. All those people need to be in the same space. And to get them there when they don't normally meet together, they have all their separate conferences. That takes a lot of planning. But the magic that happens isn't by everybody sitting in the row listening to speakers, although that helps build appreciation across disciplines when they hear their counterparts, either in law enforcement, social services, or education. But it's what happens when they're eating lunch, when they're drinking coffee. That's what happens. The overlapping networks shares expertise and experience so that you build relationships. And isn't that what partnership is about? Indeed. And something that you are really brilliant at is, and and I'm wondering how intentional this is for you, you find a way to find a place of agreement with people, even if they may disagree on 80% of things or see the world through a very different lens. You work to really find agreement. How do you go about that? So when I first started studying Hunter, and his example of Wilberforce, he had four principles that he applied. And the first was that culture changes top down. And so having a law is a place to begin. You can pull people together because they all need to understand the law. The second principle is the idea of elites. And he described elites as academic, spiritual leaders, thought leaders. And they're not in the centermost stage of prestige. They're not the politicians. They actually are on the sidelines. So they have a little different perspective. And they create content. They create spiritual content. They create academic content. And then you bring these together in these overlapping networks, and it happens very intentionally for me when we look at what happens when we find where we agree instead of where we disagree. And this is where I diverted from Hunter's model because he really focused on conflict. But I think because I work with women, I did several years working uh, with women in higher education in Iraq. And if you think about it, Iraq is predominantly a Muslim country. I'm at a Christian university. So one of my biggest concerns is that we would have religious conflict. Mm. And it didn't happen. What happened is we found that we both cared about our families and our children. 
And when I bring together people at Ensure Justice and we talk about the links to substance abuse and child abuse, we talk about the links to internet safety and keeping our children safe, we find common ground that we all care about. And that's the starting point then for the relationship and the partnership for what you do next. Exactly, exactly. Because we all care about the same thing. Can we share the same outcomes and still reach our individual goals? Absolutely. But it's going to work better if we do it together. Yeah. And the tendency that a lot of us have, I know my tendency, Sandy, and and, and we see this in our culture right now too, is we think about engaging with another organization, another industry, another industry partner, and we see the differences right away. And we tend to zero in on those differences. And you have very consciously taken the opposite approach and how you build relationships is you are conscious of the differences, of course, as you just mentioned with the, you know, the difference in you know, religious beliefs and organizations, but you lead with where are our commonalities and our strengths. And I am curious with that, does the, do the differences come in and does that, does that later on cause a problem? How do, you, how do you navigate that ongoing? Oh, absolutely. You do have to navigate the differences. At one point, especially, for instance, you're a victim service provider, you're a law enforcement officer, and you have conflicting absolute goals. And so how do you manage that? Well, you can still get to the end of the page where you need to end, but you have to go a little slower and maybe a more circuitous route, but you can both achieve your goals. That means, though, you have to have not just respect for the other partner in this, but you also have to trust them. What's a time that you've really seen that work? One of my favorite examples of law enforcement and victim service provider building that relationship has been working with my colleague and now assistant director of the Global Center for Women and Justice, Deputy Chief Retired Derek Marsh. When I began to understand what his police officers had to report, what they had to include at the end of the day, it completely changed my outlook on what I wanted them to do for my victims. What changed was my sense of if they don't do it the way I want them to do it, they're not doing it right. Uh. So my idea of what is right changed. And I had more room on my page for other ways to get to the same end destination. So taking that time to understand what they need, what their outcomes are, what their goals are, then allowed you to work together to figure out a framework where both parties can get to the ultimate goal they need to get to, but a bit more of how you frame it. Well, and here's the the part too, that it takes some practice. I have to set my own goals aside sometimes and wait until the right time to move forward on those goals. And sometimes I can get impatient. And someone who is just learning to do this can get impatient and just want to rush in and fix it. 
which doesn't build trust, you will get it done very quickly. But the price is it won't happen again. How do you combat the natural human raw emotion of wanting to get things done more quickly, not only for you, but also for the organizations you you lead and you're partnered with? How do you discipline yourselves and, and know when it's the time to step back and to make that investment, knowing that it may not work out? I have a proverb on the wall in my office. It says, go slow, go far. Go fast, go alone. Mm. And that's an important principle. And that is why this is hard. And it's why a lot of people don't do it, because you can get it done really fast if you go by yourself. But if we do this together, then it's going to last longer. If you're part of a team and you don't show up, the team can still win. I want to be part of a team. And sometimes when I'm not at my best, I have a team that is so amazing that we still make progress. I know there are people listening, thinking about what you've just said, and they're just saying, oh, I'm so with you, Sandy, on that. I love that long-term perspective. I love the going slow, going together. And I have this partner organization or this other department or this customer that doesn't share that value, that they really want to move quickly on something. And I know you run into this too, that mm. you know, a very well-meaning partner and organization or collaborator on something really wants to move much more quickly and doesn't want to do that due diligence. When that happens, how do you approach it? That is a very tough question. So I try to engage that person or that organization in a conversation and give some substantive opportunities for action. But it doesn't have to be the kind of action that is going to rush towards the end goal. So creating something that puts things in motion. I'm not in favor of more meetings, but sometimes it means we have to have a couple of meetings. It means I need to give some people, oh, I have students, this works wonderful. They've got an idea, they're going to rush into it. It's like, oh, well here, I'd like you to check this out and this and give them three things to do and then meet again next week. I had an individual actually that was going to start an organization and they had a business plan. They got through my wall at the office and they were in my office at a, and I came back from teaching a class and sat down. And so I listened for half an hour and listening. That's the beginning of relationship. And then I said, here's what I'd like to do before we meet next week. So already we have something on the agenda, right? And I'd like you to check out these three things. And so they did. They came back the next week and they said, you know, you could have told me that I was reinventing the wheel. I was doing this and this is going to be so much better. So I didn't give him the answer. I gave him a pathway to find the answer for himself and he ended up not starting an organization and instead becoming part of another organization. And I think that we can help people find ways forward to get 
more action that satisfies their sense of, of achievement without losing the value of doing it together. Because it does take longer to do it together. I am sometimes asked, what is the difference between leadership and manipulation? And I've thought about that over the years a bunch. And it used to come up in my work with Carnegie, Sandy, of thinking mm. about how to win friends and influence people, right? And some people would read that book and they'd think, oh, it's, it's a book about manipulation. And of course, it can be if you use it that way. And the distinction that I've drawn over the years is manipulation is when you take the actions and you, you are in it primarily for you. And what I hear you saying in that example is, I'm taking the actions as a leader because I want them to win too. If I am having them explore something on their own, or we're taking some action that might be a little more circuitous than we could just go there directly, I'm doing it because I have the experience and the perspective to know that if we go along on this together and take our time to get there, that ultimately it benefits them too. And I want to come back to something you said a minute ago. You are really intentional about building diverse partnerships. And I know one of your mantras is the more diverse the partnerships are, the stronger that your net is going to be. Tell me about that. Well, my idea about overlapping networks, I always think of a safety net. And the more lines there are, the safer that net is. So if I'm trying to build a network, I'm not thinking of dots on a screen. I'm thinking of those interwoven lines. And ultimately, because for me, it is about justice for men, women, and children, it's really a life-threatening risk if I'm not successful. So overlapping networks means that I have to find partners that I might normally not be partners with because they're important to the safety of the bigger picture for victims, for potential victims in my community and beyond. So it doesn't mean I have to agree with your politics. It doesn't mean I have to agree with your religion. It doesn't mean I have to agree with your life choices. It just means that I do agree this is important and we need to work together for the good of the whole community. Dale Carnegie has a phrase in uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People called Appeal to the Nobler Motives. Of, let's not get caught up in the minutia of the day and the disagreements and the politics and all those things, but let's lead first with what is really important. And Sandy, you've demonstrated throughout your career just how well you focus on that and how important that focus is of building that net of service for the people that you have the privileged influence. And it's really exciting to see that come together so substantially and so consistently in all the work you do. I'm, I'm in awe of how well you do that and also how consistently you do that over time. And what have you changed your mind on in the last few years? Oh, that's actually kind of an easy question for me to answer. I think I used to be pretty much of a firebrand and people called me a crusader and I kind of thought, you know, one person can make a difference. 
And now I don't really see it that way. I see if I try to show up by myself, there's not as much that I can do. I can do something. But if I show up with my whole team, we can make a mountain move. We. That's the secret, not me. You've told me the story before of the Pathati. Yes. Oh my gosh, I love the Pithati. Would you tell that story? Sure. I lived in Greece for 10 years, and I was visiting the palace of Nosos on the island of Crete. And when I went to the pantry, I saw this jug, this jar that literally was as tall as I was, maybe a little taller. And I'm only 5'1", so that gives your listeners perspective. And they told me that they would bring it from the fields filled with grain or olives or oil. It would be hundreds of pounds. And there was a steep set of stairs. There was no elevator, nothing. How did they get it down the stairs? The people were average five feet tall. And so on the outside of this pithari, there were baked into the jar handholds all the way around from the very base to the top. And there was a picture on the wall where they had drawn 10 people, each with their hand on one of those grips, bringing that huge jar down to the pantry. And that's how I see the battle against human trafficking. Everybody has a place where they can grab a hold and move this issue forward together. Nobody can carry it by themselves. Sandy Morgan is the director of the Global Center for Women and Justice at Vanguard University. Sandy, always a pleasure. Thank you, Dave. Sandy is a gifted storyteller. It's one of the reasons that she's been very influential in her work over the years. And she talked about storytelling in detail when she was last on episode 51, how storytelling helps you lead. So if you found today's conversation from Sandy helpful and want to hear more from her, I would recommend that episode as a next step. Also recommended is episode 215, how to collaborate across organizations. My guest on that episode was Kirsten Foote, who's also done work with Sandy and and works in the area of human trafficking, uh, is a researcher and professor. And in that conversation, we talked in detail about her research on how folks reach across organizations and influence in order to be more effective. So a lot of details there that are a good complement to this conversation. Again, that's episode 215. Also recommended is episode 279, How to Grow Your Professional Network with Tom Henschel. Tom and I talked in detail on episode 279 on how to really uh, approach networking more effectively. A lot of times we think about traditional things like networking events when we're thinking about growing our network, but Tom and I really challenge you to move beyond that. And in particular, we talked about some of the mindsets and some of the ways to really start to build relationships over time that are going to help you and, of course, to help the other person. It was an episode that a lot of people have found helpful over the years. That's episode 279. And then finally, I'd recommend episode 347, The Power of Weak Connections, with my guest, David Burkus. 
We tend to often, when we're trying to influence the world, or at least when we're starting to, is we reach out to the people that we know pretty well, which is a good place to start. It is not the place to end, though. Uh, We should also be challenging ourselves to reach out to the weaker connections in our network. And the work of David Berkus and his research really shows that we're willing to really engage some of those weaker connections that all of us have. There's some really powerful things that we can do to influence the world. And it's really incredible, actually, what his research has turned over. And I think a lot about that in my work on a daily basis and have seen the power of it as well. Episode 347 is a great place for that conversation. And of course, you can dive in on the entire library of content on the coachingforleaders.com website just by setting up your free membership. When you set up your free membership at coachingforleaders.com, you're going to get access to the entire library, searchable by topic. You're also going to get access to the member cast, all of my personal library, uh, the database of everything available from past episodes. And also one of the things that uh, I haven't mentioned recently is the resources section of the website. It is a good place for you to start as far as trying to find some of the best places to begin to uncover new material. Uh, Many of you have tapped into those over the years of looking for some of the things that we recommend as far as technology, talent development, sales and marketing, reading, productivity. There's so many parts of the resources page that will get you started on next steps on whichever topic you're looking for right now. It's the things that Bonnie and I use regularly. And when you set up your free membership, just go over to the resources tab and you'll be able to get started right on that. Uh, One of the resources that's in there is uh, the guide that I have on 11 crucial books that every leader should know. I used to send that out when folks joined our newsletter years ago. Of course, it's expanded quite a bit now into the free membership, but that resource is still there. So if you're looking for the top reads that I recommend, find that in the resources uh, tab under leadership, 11 crucial books every leader should know. Thank you so much as always for listening. And next week, our question and answer show is back. Bonnie and I are going to be sitting down and responding to questions from you. If you'd like to have your question considered for that episode or a future episode, go over to coachingforleaders.com slash feedback. Have a fabulous week and see you next week back with Bonnie. Take care.